Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I am absolutely thrilled to bring you this conversation with Susan Nakachwa and Leonida Odongo. We are talking about food justice in Eastern Africa and in particularly in Kenya and in Uganda. Susan Nakachwa is from an organization called Grain and she has worked with several civil society organizations in Africa. A journalist by training, her passion lies in researching, documenting and making the case for smallholder farming in Africa, which she believes is the best way forward. And she's based in Kampala, Uganda. Grain is an organization that partners across the continent, especially on issues like seeds, land grabs and trade policy. Leonida Odongo is a Kenyan social justice activist with a vast experience in grassroots organizing, advocacy, adult learning methodologies. Leonida has a passion working with grassroots communities on food justice, climate justice, and rural women and youth. What makes this conversation dynamic and absolutely invigorating is that Susan and Leonida bring vast experience on issues related to how free trade agreements are impacting food sovereignty in Africa. We also talk about how women are really the backbone of agriculture in Africa and any kind of international multilateral free trade agreements that occur are often at the cost of the well-being of African women. These are issues that I didn't necessarily know about and I really have to thank Dima Mahmoud for making this introduction to Susan and Leonida and for helping me start this conversation and guide me through this conversation of how do I bring it to our listeners here. So dear listener, I hope that you can send the power and the energy that come from both Susan and Leonida in the work that they do. And I hope it moves you as well to do a little bit more research or go to our show notes and see how you can connect with Susan and Leonida and help them in any way that you can. I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Susan and Leonida, for being on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. Today, we want to talk about the implications of free trade agreements on African women, especially from a food sovereignty perspective. But first, we'll start with our standard introductory question here on the podcast, which is, what role has nature played in your life? And I can start with Leonida. Okay, in responding to that, first of all, nature, we owe our very existence to nature, because without nature, we cannot survive. It's a source of food, a source of uh, economic activities, because uh, I'm raised from a farming community and a farming household. So we actually interact with nature when we're producing food. Another thing I'd like to point out is like, for example, when you are relaxing, you use nature as a relaxer. For instance, if you go to parks, if you go to lakes or water bodies, it's a way of relieving yourself of stresses, but also you're connecting with a natural aspect. And of course, the other aspect is appreciating nature in its, in its beauty. Yeah. 
to the one. Susan? That's a very interesting question. But just to say that we are alive because nature is alive. And if we look after it, it looks after us just the same. Mm -hmm. And I think in the last two years, we have seen exactly what nature can do. When they tell you that you need close to 100 million to get about four cylinders of oxygen, when nature has been supplying that to you all your life, the narrative changes. So nature is what we are. We are living it and it's accommodating us. I don't know if we are being kind to it, but that's another story for another day. Exactly. That's another story. (laughs) But I guess we're here to talk about how we have been unkind to nature, but what we're doing to try and change that in our communities. So Susan, Leonida, you both have a lot of experience around free trade agreements in Africa. And when I think of a free trade agreement, I think of it as it's supposed to be a good tool because it aims to boost trade between countries, and especially in the African continent. And ultimately, the agreements seek to encourage and reinforce the economic strength of the continent as a whole. But I am curious to know what is your perspective on free trade agreements as it relates to the work that you do? And maybe you can also tell us a little bit about the work that you do around smallholder farming and agroecology. And we can start with Leonida. So you are an activist and an educator working on agroecology, feminism, human rights, and social justice, and you're based in Kenya. So how does the recently ratified African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement impact your work? One thing is that uh, this international agreement, the regional agreement is going to have impact in terms of issues around food, because agriculture is part of what is going to be exchange or what is going to be sold within this uh, country. And I work with women, rural women who are food producers. And as you know, when trade agreements are being signed, first of all, you find that uh, the voices of women are not there. Because if, for instance, you ask the women that I work with, whether any of them were ever consulted when this decision was being made in terms of bringing Africa together into one agreement, they'll tell you we are not aware. So the aspect of voice and marginalization really comes out in that. The other thing, uh, when we talk about this agreement, the issues around uh, opening up of markets, because every country uh, is pushing for its self-interest, looking for a market for its product. So that means that whatever goods or services are going to come out from other countries, especially if you link that to agriculture, you find that they're going to be cheaper than what is locally produced. We have in Kenya, for example, Pakistani rice, rice coming from Pakistan is cheaper than rice that is produced in Moya in Kenya. And in Moya, you only need like 250 shillings to go to Moya. And Pakistan is those many, many, many kilometers away. So the aspect of dumping of product, cheap finished product is going to be affecting farmers. And it's also going to affect like, for example, infant industries that are not yet developed. And Another thing that I feel that this is going to be elitist because, as I already explained, the exclusion of voices of women. And one thing we know is that even globally, women are the majority of food producers. And when you look at the agricultural workforce, they're also the majority. And that is also being the same situation in Kenya. And if you look at poverty, rural poverty, women who are in rural areas are poorer compared to their counterparts who are in the city. 
for example, you find that maybe in the city you can get a job, a source of income, but in the rural areas, you depend on rented agriculture. And this is a cycle that goes on for 365 and a quarter days. So for me, what I'd say is the exclusion aspect, of course, also the lack of technical skills in terms of processing, because you'll find that, for instance, at the local level, and because of lack of machinery and things like that, you find that countries that are more economically advanced and technologically advanced can be able to process their products. And of course, they'll be selling finished products as opposed to, let's say, for example, Kenya, which will be exporting, for instance, raw materials. And if you look at uh, the value chain, you find that the people or countries that export processed products tend to earn more than primary producers. So if you talk about a balance of trade, what I feel is that it's not going to exist in this scenario. And of course, the aspect of financial muscle, how many youth, for example, how many Kenyan youth or how many Kenyan women can actually be able to export, let's say, food or other produce to other countries. There are aspects like trade, the regulations that you have to, you know, you have to adhere to, you know, the safety mechanisms and all that. And all this costs money. And even packaging, for example, maybe a country will decide if it's French beans, I need these centimeters. Do they have the mechanisms or the machinery to be able to gauge how many centimeters this is? So it means that uh, actually it's going to be it's elitist. So it's going to be like uh, for those who already rich will, will be able to do the business because poor women in Kenya and uh, poor rural women and poor youth, I don't think they'll be able to, they have the financial muscle or the technical muscle to participate in this and the trade of this magnitude. Mm, yeah. So Susan, you focus mostly on smallholder farming in Africa and you're based in Uganda. So when you listen to what Leonida is sharing in terms of like the exclusion of women and of youth and kind of like this elitism around free trades or free trade agreements, is that what you've observed? Definitely. And what Leonida is explaining is not any different from what we are seeing across the continent. The one thing that I would like to put on the table first is that there's nothing like a free lunch. Free trade agreements are not good for anybody. There's no free lunch anywhere. There's a return somewhere. And that is what free trade agreements are about. Because the number one thing that we have to recognize is that free trade agreements are negotiated on very unequal terms. And the things that the concessions that we are making when we negotiate free trade agreements are exactly what is making us stay back and not develop if there's any such thing as development. I think development should be defined contextually. We have failed to do that and we have failed to appreciate what we have. And we are maybe a disadvantage to ourselves, but it is not entirely a mistake of ours because every difficulty and problem that we're experiencing on the continent is rooted in so many things, colonialism, I don't know, tribalism, sexism, racism, all the bad isms that we know about yeah. are causing what we are seeing on the continent. But if we talk about agriculture, which I'm very passionate about, I think because I like about, I love food, but I love good food. Yes. I'll qualify that, that I love good food. <laughs> and <laughs> fresh organic food <laughs> made Thank at you. home. <laughs> Sustainably grown food. Yes. And we still have that on the continent. We can yes. definitely feed ourselves. But with the free trade agreements, we are recognizing that the agricultural sector is being affected every single day. Africa is home to about 33 million smallholder farmers. Wow. Wow. And most are women. Now, when we talk about the contribution of women, women contribute about 60% 
of the labor force in the agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. And they produce about 80% of the food that is consumed. Wow. So we cannot underplay the role of smallholder farmers at any point. And our governments, and I'm sure the Kenyan government says it, the Ugandan government has said it, and many other governments on the continent, every single political or policy document that you read, they tell us that agriculture is the backbone of our economies. Yes, we learned that in school. And then we say agriculture is the backbone of our economies and we don't fund it. We don't sufficiently fund it. So somebody thinks of an idea and says, okay, let's go to Africa, to this continent that is vast and bring something that will change the entire food and agricultural system. So the first thing that was done on the African continent was to remove the government from the agricultural sector and all the important sectors through the structure adjustment programs. Mm. And once the role of the government was removed from the agricultural sector and even the health sector, the education sector, all of those, there was privatization. Privatization means making money. It doesn't mean anything else. It means making money. Right. So roles that were important, like extension services, medicinal services for hospitals and, and also acquiring medicine or herbs, pesticides and all those things for farmers were completely lost once we privatized because the agricultural sector was no longer part of the government concern. That meant that somebody else started running our agricultural sector. It means that somebody else is pulling the strings on the kind of seeds that we plant, when we plant them, and the kind of crops that we have. So number one, free trade agreements do not help our agricultural sector. Because one of the things they do is they push for the commodification of things like seeds. The commodification of seeds also comes with standardization. So there are very bad seed laws that are being passed at the moment, which are pushing for commercial seeds at the expense of seeds that are grown in our communities. Now, to give you an example, when we planted seeds before on the African continent, what used to happen is that the women used to collect seeds and then decide which seeds were going to go to be used in the next season mm-hmm. and which seeds are going to be used as food and which were going to be stored. So the selection process, the storage process, all of those were jobs that were done at home. Even the acts of seed exchange, that also happened because you went to a neighbor because your seed wasn't doing too well and your neighbor enhanced your crop with, by giving you seed. When we go into free trade agreements, we criminalize the, the seed laws that come criminalize some of these things. Some, they criminalize seed sharing. So you're supposed to go to the market to buy the seed that you plant the next season, as opposed to saving seed from the previous season to the next season. What does that do? It removes the role of women in the agricultural sector. The traditional roles of women start getting compromised. Because who buys seed? It's never women, it's men. So if you look at the entire value chain, if for lack of a better word, the entire value chain, it means that the man buys because the man owns the money. So they will buy the seed, they will sell the seed. The jobs that are done in between they, harvesting, planting, seed storage, weeding, all of those are done by women, which are thankless jobs, but which are not recognized. So that is one. The second one is that the free trade agreements push for agribusiness. And as agribusiness comes into the continent, they push for industrial farming, which then is pushing for planting on large tracts of land 
And therefore, smallholder farmers will not plant on about three to 10 hectares. They never plant on big chunks of land. The moment you say you're bringing an industrial farm, you're planting maize or soya, which is also used for fuel mostly, but you're planting that on about 10 square miles of maize. To acquire that land, the 10 square miles that you need to plant maize, you will need to get rid of a smallholder farmer or two. Actually, you will need to get rid of many, many smallholder right. farmers right. to get enough land to use industrial agriculture. But industrial agriculture is very expensive because you're planting one type of crop. You need pesticides, you need machinery, and you need a huge labor force. So the farmers that were originally independent become employees of the industrial agricultural system. Yeah. Or they become outgrowers supplying the bigger farm. And that way they lose their independence. If they're outgrowers, they'll start acquiring debt because they have to get fertilizers and seed from the farm because they have to plant in uniformity. That's another story affecting diversity. So we start losing traditional varieties. We start losing, if there's about 75 varieties of maize, you can't plant all of them on a farm where you know they need uniformity. So mm -hmm. you plant one, one type of variety. And that is also sort of like a linkage to issues like that. But there's also, with free trade agreements, one of the things that we sign and I mean we negotiate is liberalization, which is always systematic liberalization of our different sectors. But what we are essentially doing with liberalization is that we are breaking down how we're going to open up our borders so we can let in more stuff from other countries. Right. And as Leonidas said, our industries then begin failing because if we have, like say in Uganda, I don't know how, I, I'm not too sure because there's a new variety that comes up, but I know about 10 varieties of beans. But those beans, we dry them and therefore it's very hard to prepare those beans. Right. But there's Heinz beans in the supermarket. Right. I'm coming from work. I go grab my Heinz beans. I don't have to go to the market to buy the dried beans and cook them for hours on end. So yeah. that's also part of the discussion around opening up borders so that we can have more staff. But remember, because we are not funding our agricultural sector and we are not subsidizing our farmers, which is done in the US and the rest of the world, the farmers are subsidized heavily. and they are comfortable, heavily subsidized. Heavily. So what is happening to our farmers? They're selling at very, very minimal prices. Because they are cheaper cool beans. You don't want to give me your beans at 1,000. It's fine. It's okay. No problem. I'll go get cool beans. They are, ready. they are prepared. I'll just pour them in a pot and I'll eat away. They are not making a, a loss at all because the governments are subsidizing them to have these things. So basically for me, my thing is even the free trade agreements also push for another thing which is not sort of related to agriculture, but the economic processing zones, which we have a lot in Kenya and Uganda and I think a few other countries on the continent. And they are saying it's a magic bullet. It will employ women. Women will be very excited that they will have jobs. We'll look after them and all of that. And we've had studies coming out of India and a lot of countries in Asia where there's labor rights violations in the NEPZ. There's poor payment of people who work there, mostly women, because they say this employment is for women. There's abuse of human rights. There's poor pay. There's long hours of work. And they never amount to anything because none of them have been a success story since they started about 30 whatever years ago. They haven't been a success story. And these are the things that the free trade agreements are pushing for. Harmonization of seed laws, creating economic processing zones, pushing for industrial agriculture and agribusiness, liberalizing economies on the continent, which is not helping our economies or helping us in any way.
And it's very interesting because we said no. And for many years, many African countries were saying no to the economic partnership agreement. We are not going to do it. We're not going to sign it. And we refused to sign it. So it expired. Now we are jumping into post-Cotonou because now the economic partnership agreement was not signed. And then they tell us, okay, fine. You've refused to sign all those. Let's go for the African continental free trade area. And then the African governments are like, yay, now we can sign that one. But in essence, it is the exact framework of the economic partnership agreement that we said no to years ago. And we are saying yes to the same things. Liberalization, fighting things like rules of origin. Because once a good within the African continental free trade area and any free trade area for that matter, you're not supposed to see anybody as above the other. So once a good lands in Kenya, we do not have a problem at all because then we don't ask for rules of origin as in the identity of the document. I mean, the identity of the crop, the plant or the whatever product is coming in because we are in a free trade area. So we don't question things like that. And what we are hearing at the moment is happening is the problem around seeds that are landing into Southern Africa, making their way into Kenya, slowly making their way into Tanzania and then making their way into Uganda and then moving along. And we are also trying to control the diary sector, a very, very sensitive sector. Again, a sector that is run by women, smallholder mm. women yeah. on the continent. And what are we doing? We are saying we need milk. So Danone is taking over the milk sector on the continent, helped by the mighty Kenyatta family, which is also trying to take over the, the milk sector on the entire continent. And the African continental free trade area is making that very easy to own the milk sector on the continent, to dump dairy products on the continent. So we are losing out on things like ghee that we used to have on the continent. We don't have it anymore. Those were artisanal jobs that were done by women to, mm-hmm. prefer, to prepare ghee. That's now being done in industry. And I'm thinking, well, what happened? Who? How? But yeah. I could talk the whole day, but yeah. <laughs> Leonida, thoughts, reactions? Okay. What I'm saying is that Africa as a continent is not prepared for an agreement of this magnitude. For yeah. example, if you look at uh, unemployment rates, for instance, across different African countries, you'll find that it's Africans who are dying in the desert looking for jobs or even uh, getting into boats to go to Europe. If Africa was actually ready for this, what will happen is that there will be jobs available for them so that they can actually strengthen their in-country economies. Another thing is the aspect of conflict. We are seeing like uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria. We are seeing Al-Shabaab in the Eastern African region. And you can't carry out trade when there is conflict or, you know, you have the fear of Al-Shabaab. You can't cross borders because you can right. be ambushed any time. Like if you're going to a place like Lamu, it's risky. Many times people have to take flights, which is quite expensive. So the question is like, if, for example, the products you want, you have to get them from Shela, for instance. How are you going to go there? That is going to be an additional cost to your production. And in business, you want to make profit. So you want to, as much as possible, minimize your cost. Right. And then the other thing observed is a mismatch between the job market and our education system. You see, like, like in Kenya, the trend has been like people are going on the streets with placards, holding placards. Like we had an actual uh, first class owner, former student, watching cars to get 100 shillings to eat. Why the, I think Africa, there should be an inward looking first before you try to, you know, you, you correct all the wrongs in your country. For example, in Kenya, we have the problem of corruption. We have uh, the rising debt, the rising Chinese debt and other debts. All our infrastructure are tanked to debt. 
Like right now, if you give birth to a Kenyan child, already they have a debt on their head, which they are obviously going to have to pay. Yes. And for example, even the taxation aspect is people are not breathing. For instance, you find that right now, like yesterday, they announced that they are going to be charging fees for parking fees, even inside Estes. That really shows you how really? the man each man's society. Yes, wow. It was yesterday. And there's a county in Tarbo, they're not allowed to green maze. The chief has come up with the green maze. So that really tells you how bad the situation is. And then this is a country that wants to go out there and project itself as, as a country that can start uh, conducting continental trade. So I think uh, there is need to look at uh, local infrastructure because this is very important issues of trade, for example, roads, internet connectivity. Like if you go to rural Kenya, there is no internet, there's no electricity. Yeah. If you yeah. go to schools, let's say, for example, in Pokot, there's no electricity, there's banditry. So how do you open up our borders when we still existing in a situation of banditry? How is trade going to thrive if there's no peace, there's banditry? So those are some, for me, I think those are some of the things they should be inward looking and correcting all those negative things that are happening so that we can actually create a thriving environment for trade to take place. Yeah. Yeah. Leonid and they were moting the idea of negotiating the African continent of free trade area online because of COVID. And they almost went through with it. <laughs> but they still say the process is inclusive. Yeah, like how many people can actually log into Zoom when they don't have electricity, especially in the rural areas, the stakeholders who are going to be impacted by these agreements. Yeah. It's just, I'm so frustrated just listening to all of these challenges around creating food sovereignty, but protecting women's rights and just corruption. It's this really long list of barriers. But clearly, both of you are working to undo some of this. So how are you fighting these massive powers so that we can still hold on to our seeds and women can hold on to the little dignity that's been left? How do you do it? What are your strategies? Okay, what we do is uh, we hold what is called the uh, Safakari Forum. Safakari is a Kiswahili word for election. And within these Safakari Forums, we look at uh, the entire food production process from soil, seed, care for crops, harvest for service, and value addition. And at each level, we make it uh, both political and technical education. For instance, on soil, we look at why is our soil changing? Because we have like... Uh, Farmers share like how long they've been doing farming. You find somebody has been doing farming for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years. And so you, you get to start asking them, what changes are you seeing on your soil, for instance? They'll tell you that, uh, one, they have to use more chemicals on their soil because they're told by the agrovet representatives that if your, your soil is unhealthy, pump more chemicals into it mm-hmm. and it's going to be healthy. And this only happens, maybe if it only happens for a very short time, just to lure the farmer to continue being a change to the agrovet. But then after some time, it becomes the soil loses its nutrients for good. And what happens is that the farmers no longer get the yield they're supposed to. And that's how, where we now build workable, cheap workable alternatives. For instance, training farmers on composting so that with composting, you use locally available material that you know the source and you produce your food in an agroecological manner that actually works in tandem with the environment. With the industrial system, what it does is that it pushes farmers into being artificial. Let's say you have 
two acres, but you try to produce food for 10 acres, which is next to impossible. So what that does is actually farmers are forced to pump more and more chemicals on their land. And still on soil, issues around soil, we train farmers to do basic soil testing. For example, just doing an observation. How On a glass of soil, for instance, drawn from your soil, how many earthworms can you spot? And of course, now that's when you also sensitize the farmers on the importance of earthworm in aerating the soil, in moving the nutrients, and of course, in also helping water to seep into the, into the soil. We also do what is called ribbon test, basically to look at the texture of the soil. The farmers make ribbons using a, a thick paste of uh, soil mixed with uh, water. And the longer your ribbon, the more nutrients your soil has. And the shorter the ribbon, the less nutrients your soil has. And the solution or the remedy to this is doing composting. Because with compost, you will be able to bring back life into the soil. The earthworms will come back. And we also sensitize them, for example, which crops to plant that nitrogen fixes, for example, legumes, the importance of legumes, the importance of intercropping, and of course, the dangers of monocropping. Because with monocropping, the crops use the same nutrients and the nutrients become depleted. It's also a danger in terms of the spread of diseases and pests. Because let's say pests that are used to tubers are not going to maybe affect vegetables, for instance, because of the difference in species. And that's why now we encourage them to do the cropping. And on seeds, for instance, that's where we have conversations around the market share of these seed companies, the mergers and the takeovers, discussions around like, for example, what was happening in 2019, the Monsanto Tribunal and case studies. For instance, the Canadian farmer was being taken to court by Monsanto because of pollination of his crop. And so we sensitize farmers so that, first of all, they can be conscious about where their seeds come from. And of course, we also have deliberations around the importance of granaries. Because like right now, you go to any African household, there are no granaries. They've disappeared. The mm-hmm. other thing is that having a granary is being backward. You know, nobody wants to be backward. Everyone wants to be modernized. And that's why now we encourage them. Even if you don't have, you know, the grass-touched granary, you can have a cemented granary, but still keep your seeds there. And then we also push for seed banks and uh, indigenous seeds. Because you find that, for instance, it's only the elderly people who are aware of the different species of seeds. So what we do is we encourage intergenerational learning. You know, the elderly farmers and the younger farmers in terms of age having platforms where they can exchange information. And of course, a lot of uh, exchange through oral traditions and documenting that. And of course, uh, pushing farmers to now start keeping those indigenous seeds, why it's important. And of course, linking uh, climate change and resiliency of indigenous seeds. When it comes to care for crops, that's when we have discussions around uh, pesticides and the dangers of pesticides. And of course, looking at what natural methods can you use to address uh, pests and diseases. And that's why we have discussions around biopests, how to make pesticides out of local plants like the neem tree can mm-hmm. be a very good source of biopesticides that many people are not aware of. And of course, it's also a repellent. When you plant it on your land, it actually repels some of the pests. And we also talk to the farmers, for example, about the dangers of chemicals and link that to emergence of diseases and the implications of these diseases, but also link that to the aspect of cost. Because farmers really need to understand that they'll end up spending more when they get trained to the, to the agrovet. And that's why we're always pushing for agroecology as an alternative 
And uh, we also have discussions around service for service and value addition and also marketing strategies. Because like, for example, you find a farmer has one sack and that sack is what they're going to use to put cabbages, carrots, sweet potatoes, even tomatoes in the same container. And by the time you take it to the market, some have the cabbages have cracked leaves, you know, the carrots are in half, the skumawiki has been pressed, you know, it's becoming a different color. And you know, the person who's coming to buy this product, you're going to use those anomalies as a bargaining chip. You will say that this cabbage, the leaves are broken. Why don't you sell it for 10 shillings instead of the 50 that the farmer wanted? Yeah. So that's why now we share with them why it's important to clean your crop because some farmers, what they do is they harvest and they take it straight. They're still in the gumboots that they came from the farm with, you know, with all the mud. And they take the same products to the market. The assumption is that if it has red mud, it symbolizes that it's fresh. Actually, they're turned off by dirty looking products or a dirty looking farmer. So, and that is also where you have conversations around how to use social media to market your product. Mm -hmm. Open up a Facebook page. Tell farmers that I'm producing cabbages, I don't use chemicals, and link that to the health aspect. Because nowadays, like for instance in Kenya, people are becoming more conscious about what they eat and yes. where their food comes from. So that's where now the, the harvest post harvest aspect comes in. And also we have discussions around proper drying of your crops. Because like in eastern Kenya, in Machakos region, there are a lot of cases of aflatoxin, which comes about when you don't dry your food properly. The white part of the maize turns into a chemical, a toxic chemical. That's why now we also have discussions with them around dry harvesting and how to test whether, you know, like maize has really dried. Basically, just take one seed, you put it on your canine, you know, just try to bite it on the canine. And if Mm -hmm. you can't bite it, it means that it's actually dry. So the farmer doesn't need to go to any lab and doesn't need to go to any university to learn this. Those are some of the strategies that we use. And of course, we also bring in the aspect of movement building. Because like if, for example, as a farmer, you're pushing issues of farming as an individual or you're doing silo organizing, nobody's going to listen to you. But if you have so many farmers complaining about the same thing, people are going to listen to you. And a good example is the, the legislation that came the other day on beekeeping in Kenya. Like if you're a beekeeper, you must be registered. The government will decide whether the type of beehives that you're going to have. Farmers are not on the same level. We have farmers who are very poor and we have farmers who are very affluent. So if the government starts determining the kind of beehives, what is the interest of the government, for instance, in, in the right. type of beehives that I keep on my farm, and I have a title deed to that, to that farm. And the constitution talks about right to privacy. Why come up with like seed inspectors within legislation to come and inspect where my seeds come from? So as Susan said, this is basically pushing for a market for an industrial system and ensuring that uh, farmers actually get trapped to the aggravates through the seeds they get, the chemicals they get. Because like we had a conversation with farmers like two weeks ago and they were saying that when they go to the aggravate to buy seeds, they're told, just plant it only one season. Do not replant them. They're actually being given warning or caution. Don't replant it. And that is part of why we have deliberations around terminator gene. And like right now in Kenya, they are pushing, they are opening the country to GM trials for cassava. Mm. And this is going obviously to open the Pandora's box for so many other things because they'll say that GM cassava has done well. And what they're saying is that it's going to address issues of food insecurity. And for BT cotton, they're saying that it's going to revive the cotton industry. But the real thing, the real reason why you're having problems with cotton is that the fact that 
with liberalization, it opened Kenya to Mitumba business. If you go to Gikomba, you can buy a shirt for 100 shillings. Yeah. But if you go to buy the material, have it still, you can even pay 3,000. So the people going to Gikomba to buy Mitumba. The problem is when the state opens the market, that cheap products are being dumped into the country at the expense of the local tailors, the local textile sellers. They're kicked out of business because everybody goes to Gikomba. Yeah. yeah, and Mitumba is basically used clothes that have been dumped from Western countries into the, the African market, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many things that I wanted to pick on here, but it's really amazing what y'all are doing with the farmers to kind of like empower them through local knowledge, but just simple things that they can do to determine the viability of their products. And you're taking more of a holistic approach, which is really encouraging. Susan, I wanted to kind of ask you the same question of like, what are you doing to empower the smallholder farmers in Uganda and then also greater Africa? But if you can speak to a little bit about the importance of holding on to our indigenous seeds. I've seen some articles where they've said it's illegal to hold indigenous seeds in some countries. I don't know if that's something that you can confirm, but I wouldn't be surprised to hear that there is like sort of this onslaught to prevent local like farmers from holding indigenous seeds because then it prevents these Monsantos, these large companies, corporations to kind of like push their seeds to local farmers. So I'll first try and paint a picture of indigenous seeds as they're used on the continent because number one, indigenous seeds are resilient. Number two, they are context-specific and therefore they can survive within context. So they sort of regenerate based on the difficulties that they are facing. Mm. And indigenous seeds are available. They're everywhere. So there's the idea of seed exchange. If your seeds didn't do well, you can exchange with your neighbor. You can exchange with the next village. You can even exchange with the next country. So the resilience of the seed as we know it on the African continent is also part of the things that industry is fighting. And Industry fights that through influencing the policies and the seed laws that we know on the continent. So most countries on the continent are being forced to join UPOV 91. And UPOV 91 basically is pushing for the harmonization of seeds, of seed laws, so that we all fall under one sort of seed law that pushes for the standardization of seeds. You buy seed from a particular farmer, I mean, from a particular seed producer, your Monsantos and all the other seed producers that we know. So the idea of exchanging seeds, the idea of storing seed from the previous season to the next one, the idea of seed selection, the idea of variety disappears when we talk about things like UPO of 91. And most countries on the continent have been forced to take on that. So it is criminal in those countries that have taken on, on UPO of 91 aspects to reproduce seed on their farms. So for example, in Tanzania, it is criminal to exchange seeds if that law passes. Yeah. Same thing happens in Southern Africa, like in South Africa. There's an attempt to do that in different countries on the continent as well. And you'll find a whole lot of countries, I think about 26, if I'm not mistaken, Linoida, who are implementing UPO of 91 or who are in the process of implementing UPO of 91. That basically means that when you sign on to UPO, all the liberties that you have within the seed system that is traditional falls away and you take on the standardization, the harmonization, you fall under particular laws, and then the farmer is basically removed from owning seed 
you have to buy seed from the agrovet every season. You cannot replant it. There are rules and regulations under which you follow in case you cross-pollinate. All those issues now come into play. So the diversity of seeds is lost because if they are producing seeds, because you know people who are tinkering with our seed systems are not encouraging diversity. They're encouraging one crop, one type of seed that you can grow. So for example, the sugar cane that you see, the commercial sugar cane that you see for sugar, communities in Tanzania have been forced to plant a particular kind of seed of sugar cane. They can't plant any other because that is the only variety that the companies are buying. So if you go to, again, Tanzania is another example, the example I can give around rice growing. All the indigenous varieties of rice are not sold by some of these companies. There's a certain kind of rice called Saro 5, which the farmers will tell you it is not sustainable. It has fat seeds and it doesn't have a scent. Mm. So when you cook it, it's huge. Like it becomes really big. It, how do they call it, Leonida? It expands. I don't know how they call it, but it expands and can feed a lot of people. But it doesn't have any value, any nutritional value, anything like oh, that. Oh, wow. This is what the company is encouraging them to grow and sell. And they're the only market. They're the only ones who can buy it. Mm. So it's a market. It's sort of like a business. It's a market. You're buying someone's seed, you're giving them money, and you're selling to them only. So the indigenous varieties are lost because you're rendering them useless. If you're not buying them, who's buying them? So farmers are forced to shift and plant what is on the market, what is being bought. And they are not planting the varieties that we would know would work. But that's not to say that farmers on the continent are falling apart. No, some of them have gone in, planted these things, realized that, ah, no, this is not working out. And they, they, they switched back. Mm. But there are some systems where you cannot switch back. Systems like planting sugarcane, things like planting rice, because they are work intensive. And because of that, that problem of switching the garden back to planting food, which farmers find difficult, it needs money. Mm-hmm. So they don't do it. And for me, in all of this, there have been success stories as well. So we'll not sit here and lament and say that uh, we are falling apart, that our diversity is not being protected. Farmers are very clever. They will tell you that we use our indigenous knowledge. If you speak to farmers in the rural areas, it was very interesting. As we had conversations with them, they would tell us that your ministry doesn't give us proper information on the weather. It is always wrong. But we know how to tell that the weather is changing. We look at the jacaranda tree. If it flowers, then we know. We listen to the direction of the wind. And there's a celebration of indigenous knowledge. Mm. There's that awareness that farmers have, which we need to tap into. When we start talking about the agroecology movement, that's what we are talking about, which we have a big movement on the continent now. We are talking about food sovereignty versus food security. We are talking agroecology because there are so many aspects that give power and decision-making back to the farmers and out of the hands of the industrial sector. And within that, we are seeing a lot of diversities coming back. We are seeing farmers who are getting initiatives out on seed sharing, on seed storage. We are seeing this knowledge coming back, the sharing of knowledge. We are also pushing ourselves to see that we start respecting some of the aspects of the African culture that shared information. That not everybody, yes, we are doing this research and putting it out there, but we're also reinventing the way we are disseminating research on the continent. These conversations that we have, platforms like this, going to radio stations, um, partnering with people who have platforms to sit down and talk with communities 
and hear what they have to say so that we start telling stories from the perspective of the communities. Mm-hmm. Celebrating African farmers, I will tell you here now that the agroecology movement, the one that I've worked with in the last five years, has said we will not have pictures of an African farmer looking like they ran out of the garden because the narrative of an African farmer in the rest of the world is a woman who's dressed, I don't know how, the clothes are looking that way, the child is hungry, it's not coming out of their mouth. And that is a narrative we are changing as the agroecology yeah. 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 movement. We are saying we are not taking pictures of women or children on the African continent looking like that. Yeah. So if you look closely at the agroecology movement, we are very, very careful about the narrative that we are putting out there with regards to what knowledge we have on the African continent. We are celebrating, we are respecting, we are recognizing, and we are saying enough is enough. And we are making linkages from the garden to the plate. So yeah. that entire, we are talking about that entire value chain. We are adding that conversation around the issues on the increase of NCDs on the continent. We are also starting a very weird campaign when we were starting it, it was like, these guys are crazy. But the one we were saying, no to supermarkets. Yeah. Because when supermarkets come in, they're selling fresh produce. Where are they selling fresh produce when we have fresh air markets? Yes. Which have survived for centuries. And we're saying, no, we're not talking about supermarkets selling fresh produce. And I was very amazed because there's a community in Nakuru, which then took the campaign further and they said, well, we are also advocating and we're asking the county government to pass a rule that supermarkets should not sell fresh produce. They can sell toilet paper, they can sell spaghetti, they can sell everything else. They cannot sell tomatoes and onions. And there's interesting things on the continent that are happening, which for me is speaking to the restoration of diversity and is speaking to a lot of these conversations that we are having. Because while there are people who are doing the extension services now, there's the Alliance of Food Sovereignty in Africa, which Leonida subscribes to as well, which we also subscribe to as GRAIN. There's the African Center for Biodiversity producing excellent research around agroecology, around protecting farmers, around the influx of GMOs and what they mean. Then they're also doing the practical skilling, like biointensive fertilizer and all of that. And then we are coming out and addressing the policy frameworks, the seed laws and all of that. And so it's a wholesome experience. And most recently, we have also gone crazy and said, people who are promoting a lot of these things are in the diaspora. The ones who are telling us, you Africans have refused to sign the African continental free trade. They're like, listen, we will not sign it because of this and this. And this. Yeah. So we need to have conversations yeah. with the diaspora and let them know Whatever it is that you're promoting in the African continental free trade area is not right. Yeah. It doesn't speak to our realities. It's not a conversation that we're having on the continent because it's up here. But our issues are everywhere and we need to meet all those levels and address them separately. So we are also pushing for a conversation with the communities in the diaspora to let them know that as they push for this thing, they need to understand, they need to hear, and they need to listen to the communities. And not us, because even me and Leonida, we've had an opportunity to interact with these things, so we speak about them just like that. But the rural grassroots communities, and we need to understand campaigning and advocacy from their own perspective. Because one of the things that we recently, we speak to oil palm communities, because now some countries have said planting oil palm. They've never consumed oil palm. A country like Uganda, we do not have oil palm traditionally. We're right. producing oil palm somewhere in Kalangala Islands, and we've lost a whole so lot of islands producing oil palm. And we go to speak to these communities, 
you know, oil palm and all these difficulties, you eat it, what, what? No, we don't consume it. It goes straight to the company and they produce oil soap and all those things. And as we are talking about how to develop a campaign and conversation with these communities, the lady tells you, hi, me, my husband beat me last night. How do you domesticate this conversation so that you get a campaigner, but a wholesome campaigner who's also going to, you need to include these things. And yeah. these conversations need to happen. A lady is telling you, my child did not eat last night. And you're telling them, go and fight that company there. How? Oh, when my child didn't eat. Yeah. We need to understand the different layers and the different communities, the different contexts. And for me, the biggest thing, which really sort of always gets me a bit worked up, is the whole assumption that Africa is one country. Yeah. Because the, the issues are very, like a community here in the Kalangala community, that I'm giving an example on the oil palm, that's their issue. And they have different other issues, like their island communities. They live on Lake Victoria. Their lifestyle is in fishing. Yeah. And you're getting them off the land, I mean, off the water, to send them to go and dig. But like their livelihood is in water. Then we have another community in Kiriandongo. There's a whole land grab that is going on by some US-based companies. And the land grab is going on. And this community is migrated from different parts of Uganda. They already have their unique problems around being tortured in their own region. So some of them come from northern Uganda, which has had, had a war for about 20 years. And they've moved to this area. They've started settling again. And then this company comes because they want to plant maize. They move all of them off the land. Mm -hmm. And then they start planting maize. And these people have, first of all, human rights issues. They have issues around being moved from one area. to so They have trauma from northern Uganda. They come yeah. into this area and you add trauma. You, you chase them off their land. You dig off their food. And then you tell them, no, but you can buy the food. And we're asking, what about food sovereignty? Because you can't assume that because there is maize in that garden that I am food secure. No, I'm not. Because what I define as food is very different from what somebody else defines as food. For example, you need a, for you it's ugali, right? For me, it's matoki, it's bananas. <laughs> yes, for me, it's bananas. But when you drive about 20 kilometers out of Kampala, their food sovereignty is, is, is consistent of maize, I mean, of, of cassava. Another area in Uganda, it is sweet potatoes. So like, how do you address all these diversity issues and respectfully talk about them right. without thinking that Africa is a country? How <laughs> to write about Africa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, because I think even I've experienced that here in the U.S. where like references to Africa is like it's one country. And so in this conversation, I wanted to make it very clear that there's like a Kenya and a Uganda that you all are representing, but there are also some commonalities in the challenges that other African countries face in terms of like seed sovereignty, or even that there's the massive role of women in farming and being the seed guardians, essentially. But I'm really just encouraged by kind of the efforts that you all are putting towards creating a sense of pride in the knowledge that you have and pride in like the practices, your traditional practices in, in farming. And it's a narrative that you don't hear of often. Like you were saying, it's image that the rest of the world sees of Africa is of, like you were saying, like the tattered clothes and the sick kid and stuff like that. When begging. we're so much more yeah, begging, like there's so much vibrance in each country within the African continent and so much diversity, like you were talking about, Susan. And 
we need to export more of those type of images and we have to kind of take over our own narrative. So thank you for doing all of that work. And I feel like there's just so much more to unpack in this conversation that we need to have a part two, <laughs> if you're willing to, to indulge me again. But we're almost at time. And I wanted us to go into what we call the lightning round, which is basically I ask you a series of four questions and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. So I can start with Leonida first, if you're ready. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I've read uh, Yash Tandon's book, Trade War. It's a book by Yash Tandon. What it actually tells you is about the exploitation of the African continent and, of course, through trade and the trade agreement and the fact that it's very deliberate to have Africa as primary producer or primary product as opposed to processing product. And the fact that every country is always pushing for its self-interest. And the sad fact that even at trade negotiations, Africa is never had, you know, even, yes, it's a huge, huge continent with a lot of natural resources that should have a space as far as trade negotiations are concerned, but you find that it's always sort of muted. And this is something that is structural in terms of uh, the architecture of international trade negotiation process. I will add that to our list of resources. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I think I have something, tenacity. You know, when I hold something, I don't let it go. I'm very determined in terms of uh, what I do. Yeah. And uh, I never give up until the end. And I think that is uh, really something that has helped me. And uh, in addition to that, a people's person. And I love reading. So that's why now it's one. Sometimes I get comfortable, like when issues are being discussed, it's not something so alien to me. I can actually participate and be articulate as far as what is being, is being discussed is, is, uh, is concerned. You know, this narrative of if you want to an Africa not to know something, you hide it in books. For me, it doesn't work because I actually read. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe for others, but for me, I'm okay, I read. Yeah. <laughs> You're tricking the system. What's the best piece of advice you've received? One is uh, believe in yourself and never give up. I think that is also contributed to my thing. Like, I don't stop until it's over. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, what is your superpower? My superpower is uh, I'm a people's person. I always um, able to connect with people. Uh, like, for example, if I meet you, I always keep your business card. Even if it's 10 years, I always tell myself, There'll come a time when I need to talk to Sapna. <laughs> Any time. <laughs> yeah, so I always keep contact and always keep in touch. Yeah. Yeah. That is really a superpower. It's so hard to keep in touch with people. It really is. Yeah. We get busy and lost in our own worlds. All right. Thank you for that. So, Susan, now it's your turn. What have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I will go with, uh, there's been quite a few, but I'll go with the works of Michael Moore. I absolutely love his work because that taught me that you can you know, speak truth to, to power. Mm -hmm. It taught me that the systems that we, we so aspire towards and the systems that we were told were working in the U.S. are actually dead. And I was like, ah, so we can fight this. We can build a narrative around the continent and run with it. 
because there is a lone voice that is running with this with this entire campaign. People might not believe in him, but I think that the body of his work just shows that you can be a lone voice in a community of naysayers, but still speak your truth, speak truth to power, question what is not right, and don't give up. Don't ever give up because he still brings out something. Whatever people say, he will still bring out something, 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 something. And I think for me, that has really inspired me. And I think what's moved me more into being passionate about all my work is how he was questioning the fast food culture and the insurance culture and all those cultures that he keeps questioning, which we thought were systems in place and systems that were working. And then all of a sudden he tell you, no, 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 actually the systems are not working. They are broken. And that's when we also started coining the word around the broken food system, you know, on the African continent. It is continuously breaking in the rest of the world and we need to protect ours and all of that. So I love his work. Yeah. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Practicing what I preach. Amen. Living my truth. (laughs) Passion for what I do. No, seriously, I really practice what I preach because one of the things that I learned about Earlier on was the whole food and nutrition direction. And when I had that, I went to understand it. And then I started consuming what I felt was right. So the foods that I talk about, I consume them. Mm -hmm. The agricultural practices that I am talking about, I am practicing them. At least some of them I'm trying to practice them. Yeah. When we said becoming aware, because I kept wondering, and for me this is very important, because I kept wondering why there was a narrative around African-American women being prone to suffering from cervical cancer as opposed to to white women. And I was trying to realize, but why? But we're all women. So why would we be different from the others? Until I realized, hmm, it's the relaxer. And I got off relaxer, I got off products. So everything that I use on my body is available here in Uganda. I can get it in a heartbeat. And then we started realizing, okay, you can actually use shea butter as Vaseline. And you don't have to yeah. use Vaseline. And You're using products from Uganda, hair products that are made by Ugandans, food that is grown here. So less and less, do a lot more walking, be a bit more active, all of these things. And then start appreciating nature, start working with nature. Nature can heal you. And yeah, things might go wrong. You might divert a bit, but I think one of the things that I'm very passionate about what I do, and I am very passionate about what I put into myself, and therefore it helps with ensuring that I get my work done. Because I know what I'm talking about, I've tried it on myself. You share tenacity with Leonida. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. What's the best piece of advice you've received? So the one that I always go with one day at a time, and it's okay. Be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm very kind to myself. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. It'll be hard, but it's fine. And my mother always tells me because... She says I'm slow (laughs) and I'm a procrastinator. That's my mother's opinion. I don't know about that, but that's what she says. But she always tells me, never leave anything for the next day. Always finish what you need to do that day. Don't keep any leftovers. So, yeah, those are my sort of mantras that I go around with. That's a good one. And finally, what is your superpower? Nature is my superpower, but also... Listening to people, I'm a very good listener. And because I listen a lot, it inspires me to do stuff. I always want to to listen and then feel like I did something to change someone's life. Mm. So I do have a huge listening ability. I could actually sit, as much as I talk, 
I also listen very well. I'm a very good listener. And I like giving. Mm. And it doesn't have to be monetary or anything of the sort, but giving myself and applying myself to all the stuff that I do. That has taken me far. So I know a lot of people in different networks because of what I have applied myself to do and how I do it. And the people around me, the circles around me, make me a better person. Yeah. Oh, wow. So humble to even share this internet space <laughs> with you all for like an hour. So thank you so much for this time, for sharing your knowledge. I hope we can continue the conversation because there's just, as I said, so much more to unpack. And sadly for me, even though I was born and raised in Kenya and agriculture was one of our subjects that was required, I learned a lot about ag in Kenya. But the things that we discussed about today, I was hardly ever aware about. So thank you so much for all the work that you do and for bringing awareness and I hope that there's a way that we can activate the diaspora to help support your initiatives, especially around agroecology and to do some of the campaigning around the pride and the knowledge that Kenyan and Ugandan and African farmers have for their land and for what they, they cultivate. So hopefully that can be our next conversation where I'm happy to be a part of that. So finally here, how can we follow you all on your journeys? Leonida. Okay, for me, I have a blog. It's called Leo Conversation. It's online. And also I write on Hakinawiri blog, which is also online. I do a lot of, you can follow what I'm doing on Twitter at uh, Nanodo2001. And also you can follow me on Facebook at Nana Odongo. And those are also spaces that we use for conversations. We also have a YouTube channel for Hakinawiri. Although it's not yet as active as it ought to be, but uh, we're looking forward even to having uh, more conversations, for example, because like right now we're having, starting having conversations around agroecology with youth because of these uh, negative aspects and looking at agriculture as punitive. So trying to bring back the glory into agriculture, because like you find many a times you're given an agriculture-related activity as punishment when the food at least you know, something that makes you feel demeaned. So we are starting to have those conversations, for instance, with the university students mm. in terms of what they eat, what influences what they eat, and also having exposure visits to rural communities just to have an alternative worldview about food production, about where the food comes from. And they're having a lot of culture shock. For instance, when we went to Machaco store, they're actually seeing food being produced and they're asking, but the picture we have of Machakos is uh, sand everywhere, no food, and you know, people only need food. So that is part of how we are we are yeah. in, encouraging intergenerational knowledge transfer. And of course, we also have like sometimes we have platforms where uh, we share, for instance, just to self-organize activities. For instance, during the 18th anniversary of the Maputo Protocol, with different organizations, we came together just to start doing like a an assessment of where are we in terms of women, where are we in terms of issues around food, production, decision-making, and things like that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. This is just so impressive. When I'm back home, we definitely have to meet. Oh, <laughs> when I was in primary school, if we ever came late, the punishment was to slash the grass 
in the field. <laughs> so I totally relate to the whole like agricultural like work being punitive because part of like tending to the land is making sure that the grass doesn't grow too long in certain parts. And it was really painful. We got blisters and we used the old like slashes, you know, the ones with the blade and the... The heavy ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Susan, how can we follow you on your journey? So, like I said at the beginning, I work with Grain and our works are available on the Grain website, all of them that we have worked on. And we are also, so the Grain website is grain.org. And we are on Facebook. We are on Twitter as well, very active on social media. And we do respond to any kind of questions, even if you just sort of pop the question on the wall, we will definitely come in your inbox and respond to you. And you can get me on email, susan at grain.org. You can get me on Facebook. I have a Ugandan name, which I don't know if people will find. Uh, even if I try we'll, list it. It. <laughs> we'll list it on the show notes if you want. <laughs> yeah, and I am on Twitter as well. But even if you use the Grain Twitter account, you can still get me because it will be directed to Okay. Well, thank you so much again, both of you, for your time. And I will be in touch for sure as we air this. But thank you again so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us and I look forward to continuing the conversation. I think there's a lot more here that we need to follow up on. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and time. Thank you. You're thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.